Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. And today we're talking about some recent advances in artificial intelligence, specifically in image generation and large language models and their impact on the open source community. crazy progress that's happening in AI these days with AlphaFold and Dolly and Glide and GitHub Copilot. Yeah, I mean it it's it's a mix. I think uh it's so easy to to get to sort of take the advancements for granted at this point. But at the same time the advancements being made are so incredible and world shaking that it's still hard to wrap your head around them and the full implications of them. Yeah, and I think especially with GPT three, there's always the caveat from a lot of people that that you know it, it doesn't actually understand language; it's just doing prediction of what the next word is. But mm. with, with things like AlphaFold, where it solved this gigantic problem in biology that was almost impossible to crack for you know fifty plus years, things like that, and then things like Glide that we'll talk about, which is very realistic photo generation from text prompts. Mm. That that seems like more of a substantial milestone than than a lot of what we've already seen yeah so can you remind me even what is alpha fold i forget about that one so from what i understand uh it has to do with with the way proteins fold and proteins are formed from amino acids right and there's a, a limited number of amino acids and the strings of them that form proteins are incredibly long and complex and the problem was to predict how a certain protein would fold given its amino acid chain. Mm. And there are so many factors that it just becomes almost impossible. And DeepMind finally solved it with this program called AlphaFold. I, there is some debate about whether they actually solved it or not. It's, mm. it's some, some like percentage in the 90s that you know, it, it gets right. Mm. But it's enough to to spur a bunch of advances in medicine that we can't even really fathom yet. And we'll kind of see the impact of it over the next few years. Wow, that's really exciting. Kind of like a, some, something happened below the surface and the ripples will propagate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this has, I think this has obviously a way more significant impact on actual human existence than something like beating go beating humans at go or chess or mm. you know gen ger generating poetry that could plausibly have been written by a human mm -hmm. of course all those things are just uh milestones they're 
they're markers for us to have a sense of like, oh shit, well now they can do that too. What else might they be capable of? Right, right. So like I said, the the other model that I think is more significant than others is this program called Glide. Hmm. Tell me more about it. So Glide stands for Guided Language to Image Diffusion for Generation and Editing. And this is a descendant of this other program called Dolly that people might have heard of that does a similar thing where you can give it a prompt like avocado chair and it'll come up with not photorealistic, but but images that look like a human animated them or or put them together and exactly what you would think when you hear the word avocado chair. Totally. And some of them, some of them are like pretty damn convincing too. Right, right. And so Glide kind of expands that to be able to do things like make a photorealistic generation from a drawing or insert objects into a an image convincingly and has a much more flexible response to props. Hmm. Okay, that's impressive. Um do you have do you have like an example of that? Yeah, let me pull up the examples and obviously since we're in a audio medium, <laughs> you'll have to go look these up for yourself. <laughs> I mean we'll put it in the show notes, obviously. Okay, so there's a photorealistic image of a hedgehog using a calculator, a corgi wearing a red bow tie and a purple party hat. <laughs> A high-quality oil painting of a psychedelic hamster dragon. Okay. <laughs> Here, I, I, I can send these to you so you... you uh, yes, you please. I, I want to see this high-quality oil painting of a psychedelic hamster dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the corgi. <laughs> oh, my God. Cartoon of Albert Einstein wearing a Superman costume. Mm-hmm. Damn, that fall landscape with a small cottage next to a lake looks sure like a photograph. Yeah, yeah. And I can totally see how this is an extension of of what I would what I would agree is not very significant advances in neural networks where it's just basically parroting things, but mm. something about this just struck me as the, and I realize this is using anthropomorphic language, but the machine saying, I understand what you mean by these words, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of just like staring back at you. Like, yes, I know what you mean by Einstein in a superhero costume. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It, so yeah, it's really hard for me to not read some kind of understanding into that, you know? Yeah. I'm remembering an example from Dolly. This is the precursor to glide. Um, where it's given the text prompt a living room with two white armchairs and a painting of the Colosseum. The painting is mounted above a modern fireplace. And the images it's generated, it's exactly what that describes. There is a painting, and for each image, it's a unique artistic representation of the Colosseum. Um, and the armchairs and fireplace and the room, all is there just as it was described, and all of the things are placed in physical space in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> how can it do that if it doesn't understand what a white armchair is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the most, I think, the most visceral reaction I've had to any kind of AI 
thing because something like go or chess it's it's obviously a very restricted formal system right it's like mm. this uh, computers were made to do this kind of thing yeah but again this just seems like i'm seeing the artificial intelligence staring back at me saying i understand what you mean <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> yes i felt the same way about some of the poetry generated by gpt3 mm-hmm. especially the ones where like it was given the prompt to, like basically write a poem about what it's like to be a super intelligent ai uh-huh. <laughs> so would you say that in a certain sense this is uh passing the turing test for you no i don't i don't think it's passing the, i mean the, the turing test is more about having a conversation with an ai and like intentionally trying to get it to mess up and reveal that it's not human right mm-hmm. which we are we are nowhere near that sure um, but in a broader sense, just like, does it convince you that the intelligence here is an actual intelligence? It's an actual consciousness of some sort. Well, I think we have to be careful about mixing the words consciousness and intelligence, because I think those are two separate things. Hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> how, how, how would you do, differentiate them? Okay, well, I, I'd say we have much less of an understanding about what consciousness is compared to intelligence. And we have, I think, still a pretty poor understanding of what intelligence actually is. But consciousness is something way more ephemeral and hard to describe. And, and, and it's by its nature subjective, right? So you can't, hmm. there's there's no way besides asking the program if it's conscious. Uh, right. Unless, unless, you know, unless we get to a super intelligent AI that actually understands what consciousness is, it can tell us. I am, I am conscious or not conscious for these reasons. Huh. Okay, so maybe conscious is a loaded term, but how about experiencing, like experiencing awareness? I feel like those are the same thing. Huh. Okay, so by consciousness, you mean just the ability to experience? Yeah, I would use the, I think it's Thomas Nagel. Is it, his definition is, is it like something to be that thing? Are are the lights mm. on in some sense? Right. Could you could you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, I can try. Although this is the kind of thing where you just kind of end up going in circles because it's something that's inexplicable. But welcome to all of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so unless all of matter is conscious in some way, which we don't really know. There's it's it. <laughs> Can I rephrase that? I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> every time this comes up, I just think of that meme where everyone's like, "Say the line, Bart." <laughs> uh, uh. Um, uh, okay, well, if panpsychism isn't true, then there's nothing. <laughs> It's like to be this this table that's in front of me, right? This table is not having an experience. Right. And that's different from me that is having an experience. Hmm. And and a lot of our best guesses about consciousness now boil down to that it's something like information processing. From our from our understanding of the brain, that's as good of an answer as we can get, I think, right now. And it might be that it's a very specific kind of information processing. Hmm. And I'm, as we not to not get not to get down a rabbit hole here, 
because you know we what? don't like Us? that. We don't like that on post wave. We don't no, like rabbit no, holes. Sir. <laughs> uh, Straight and narrow here. Yeah, I came across this idea the other day that made a lot of sense, which is maybe everything is conscious, or at least you know a lot of animals are conscious, but we have this kind of thing called metaconsciousness where we're aware that we're aware, and that's actually what we're talking about. Mm. Yes. Yeah, because like if if the if the table is aware in some sense, is it aware of being a table? Probably not, right? Right. I mean, there's no, there's no way to represent concepts. Mm. The the brain represents concepts through connections of neurons, right, and and yeah. formations of neurons. But the table doesn't have a way to take in information and encode it somehow, and then access it. Make a model of what a table is to compare itself against. Right. Right. Mm. And you could say that a neural network is closer to being able to do that. That does some, have some kind of representation of the world. But I think, yeah, I, th I think there's, there's, there's no way that, that any of these AI models we have now are conscious. I think that's hmm. very unlikely. Okay, so then where's the distinction? If conscious means having an awareness um, and the AI models are able to create models of concepts, ideas, objects, then where's the distinction? How is that separate from an awareness? That's a valid point. I feel like, I feel like consciousness probably I, i'm just spitballing here obviously but i feel like consciousness probably evolved as a result of our senses at least in part so you're saying that to have consciousness uh that consciousness is a product of sensory input i don't know if it is at this point in human evolution because i can certainly imagine not having any of my senses and still being able to think right i could still have thoughts even if all my senses went away but I feel like a system having the property of consciousness could have only arisen out of that initial that initial structure that was meant to take in information from the outside world. Hmm. And maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe the only reason I can have that I can conceive of having thoughts without any senses is because I've already taken in so many so much sense information in the past twenty six years. Hmm. Like maybe, maybe if I hadn't done that, and I was literally just you know a newborn. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to have that that inner train of thought because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have language, right? I mean, how, how do you how do you how do you think without language? I mean, you can have emotions and stuff, but again, wh where would that where would that come from in mm. a AI model? No, that I think that's such a valid point because uh, I forget I forget who was paraphrasing this, but from Helen Keller's autobiography. She describes the moment at which she finally started to understand that her tutor was like communicating to her mm -hmm. through touch, like mm -hmm. uh, teaching her a language. Mm -hmm. The moment she started forming understandings of what words were, it was like she, she was born, and before that point, she didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I saw, I saw something about that moment a while ago somewhere, and yeah it's it's really wild to think about how profound a feeling that must be mm. so i think there's a very strong uh 
support for your idea that consciousness arises eventually as a result of perception. Mm-hmm. And so then, when it comes back to these neural networks, isn't the input their perception? The, the text that you feed into them, isn't that a thing that they are perceiving? I guess you could say that, yeah. You have, you have a good point. Hmm. It's a part, part of me just feels... Part of me just feels like we're going to have to engineer consciousness if we want it to happen. I, hmm. I, I don't... Again, I have, I have no idea if that's actually true, but that's, that's my intuition that it's such a complex phenomena that we're not, we're not going to be able to engineer it until we actually understand it. Hmm. Unless, unless, we, unless we go down the route of just completely simulating the brain, in that case, then it's only a matter of time if we're just trying to simulate the brain as, as accurately as possible. But I think with these machine learning models, it's there's, yeah, I just don't see any way that this thing that's just a bunch of weights is experiencing something like consciousness. <laughs> that's so funny. Because, like, you could, you could, and, and I, I wouldn't recommend this, but you could take that train of thought all the way through to humans as well and say, oh, well, I, I, I couldn't see how these uh, assortments of carbon and electrons could have consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that 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 is the thing. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's interesting about your intuition about not being able to uh, engineer consciousness, uh, at least without having a, a full understanding of what it is. And my 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 instinct is more along the lines of yes, because it's not possible to have a full understanding of what consciousness is. And so therefore, the, the way any consciousness will evolve is not through engineering, um, but through autogenesis. What do you mean by autogenesis? Bring, bringing yourself into reality through awareness of yourself. Let's see. Because, you know, it's not like you can create the consciousness all of, of, of itself. It needs to for anything to exist in this world it needs to want to exist it's like what we were talking about it comes down to desire like my like my mom talks about uh it's the desire to exist that allows you to self-propagate and grow and expand in this ever-expanding world and so in order to remain relevant in order to stay alive you have to have that drive to survive and so in a sense you have to create yourself you have to adapt yourself to new situations constantly in every single moment Mm-hmm. I mean, I know one explanation people have thrown out for consciousness is it has something to do with the model your brain is creating of the world and constantly updating, right? Which seems on a similar line to what you're saying. Yeah, and and e- even beyond like just creating a model of the world, just like existing in the world. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. Like having a present experience. Uh, an awareness of yourself in the present, um, regardless of what models you build around that, I think is the central element in order to have what you might consider a consciousness. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, I, I know lots of people are are trying to come up with mathematical models of intelligence, and it's just hopelessly complex. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how I don't know how that fits into 
that fits into that conception of consciousness. But it's yeah, I mean the the amazing thing is it has to be. Well, I don't know. It has to be. It's likely very, very, very complicated, and and yet we have this very seamless experience of the world that just seems completely normal to us. And of course, it seems normal because we don't have anything else to compare it to. But we're not constantly seeing the glitches in this very complex process. It's just. Hmm. And the complex process, would you are, you are you talking about intelligence or consciousness? Uh both. Both. I mean I guess mostly consciousness. Interesting. I I think that if consciousness is to be a complex process, it has to simultaneously be a profoundly simple process. What do you mean by that? Cause like for it to exist at all and for it to have meaning as as for anything to have meaning, then why does it exist? <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that helps. I don't know. It's it's just this instinct um, that is not my idea. It's uh, Michio Kaku talks about this, uh, and he talks about Einstein talking about this, and all the other great theoretical innovators who drastically expanded our understanding of the world that those sort of intuitive understandings of how things work are kind of built around this intuition that things at their core no matter how outwardly complicated they are have to have a simple explanation for why they're that way that's interesting. I feel like that's kind of biased by our human intuition. Like I think of, I forget who it was, but we we have this intuition that there there must be a theory of everything, right? And then mm. it, it in order to be satisfying, it has to be simple. But we could imagine an intelligent an intelligent alien race that for them the idea of simple is like a thousand equa- equations that they have to hold on their head at once. Right, right. And they're like, oh, it's so simple and elegant, but. To us, obviously, that's hopelessly complex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think, I think, to me, again, it comes down to recursion. Like, uh, your man, what's his name, Douglas, Douglas Hofstadter. Hofstadter. Yeah, <laughs> not, <laughs> like not your talks man, about... but my man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he talks about these recursive uh, models where it's a simple process that repeats and uh, iterates, permutates. Uh, but that simple process is uh, capable of birthing absolutely complex things. And that, as far as we can understand, seems to be how life originated and like all, how, how all of existence that we can perceive as, as being alive works. Right, right. It had to have started from basically amino acids, right? Yeah, or before that, what, like a singularity <laughs> oh you, you mean like the universe yeah you can take yeah. it all the way back yeah <laughs> although I've, I've heard that the i, I, sh- I should say about that actually i don't know <laughs> i think I, some some people now are questioning the whole story of the big bang and how that all actually happened and whether mm. that's and i think specifically with with inflation how that all played out yeah, that's an interesting topic because inflation would imply that there's like some sort of external force that drove the expansion of the universe. Yeah, I mean we we have we have no idea 
what what started i mean i think the 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 one i've heard that that intuitively makes the most most sense to me is that it's the same thing just keeps happening over and over again which the, the universe expands like it starts and expands and then cools off and you know you have the heat death and then after an incom incomprehensible amount of time there's some massive quantum fluctuation that creates a point of infinite density that explodes and makes another universe but mm. <laughs> uh but if, again the intuition is not necessarily a good guide in this situation so that's an interesting i mean we've talked about intuition before and how maybe it's a better guide than we would like to think yeah. uh, as, as a society who relies so heavily, heavily on science. If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. and talk about the uh, GitHub Copilot. Yeah, thing. sounds good. Yeah. So one of the other big advances we've seen that I think is also more of a milestone than people give it credit for, although I, th I think it's not, it's not as significant as it would seem on its face, but this is the, the rise of AI that can write code, right? Totally. Yeah, so like Sorry. GitHub Copilot, which was built upon CodeX, which was built upon GPT-3, mm -hmm. the large language model we were talking about earlier. Right, right. And so. obviously, obviously there's no shortage of training data because GitHub exists. And <laughs> so it's, it's Stack Overflow exists. And so there are lots of examples of people asking a question about how to do something and then people answering it. And so, so what this thing can do is you can give it a text prompt in plain English and it will try to code it for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is just <laughs> nuts. And, you know, it can pass medium level coding interview questions. Hard and, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, those are the kinds of questions where solutions will be out there more than others, right? Like those are the kinds of things people mm. will look up. but. Well, I think that's an important thing to note right now, though, because uh, the other advance that you just sent me, Alpha Code, that came out, what, like four or five days ago, that article, uh -huh. uh, which talks about how the, it, it does the same thing. It, it takes in text prompts of what you want your algorithm to do and will generate a working solution. It performs slightly above the average for 
coding competitions, which are pretty pretty high level stuff. Right. Um, yeah. Is, is it like it's better than fifty one percent of competitive coders? Yeah, I think it was like fifty four percent, fifty six, something like that. Um, <laughs> which is nuts. But they make a point of clarifying that the alpha code has never seen these algorithms before. These are unique challenges that it has never seen. It's not in the training set. Uh-huh. And so in order to generate the solutions, it's not just copying it from somewhere on the internet. It has to fully f- figure out the, basically invent the algorithm every single time. Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. That is frightening. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, frightening in the sense that this may be uh, an end to the age of getting paid as a software developer. Yeah, at least for the easy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, I mean it's gonna it's gonna kind of raise the bar on what you need to do as a software developer to get a job. I think. Yeah, interesting because uh, well, so yeah, it's it's definitely going to improve productivity, right? Mm-hmm. And so that productivity means there's a financial motivation for companies to hire fewer employees to do the easier stuff. You still, of course, need uh, someone who knows conceptually what you want your application to do uh, on a broad scale, but also all of the nuances of it um, and to the point of understanding how the code is implemented, even if that code is generated by AI. Right, right. You need someone there to make sure that it's as efficient as possible and as safe as possible, among other things, right? Right. Because uh, occasionally uh, the solutions produced by the AI are hard to understand, and there's a, it's can be tempting to want to implement code. They'll say, hey, hey, it works, so I'm just going to throw it in there. Right. But uh, this is actually not what you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, you get into technological debt. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but so because of that, there uh, could be fewer developer jobs because the AI can do a lot of what people can do right now. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, the the I think the first place this kind of popped up was this thing called GitHub Copilot, which was kind of marketed as this is your assistant. This isn't this isn't mm-hmm. going to replace you. It's your assistant to make you more productive, right? Yeah, and that's about where it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, GitHub Copilot, like we said, is built upon GPT-3. GPT-4 comes out in 2023, so <laughs> we'll see what oh, happens really? then. Yeah. Somehow I thought it was coming out later this year, but... No, sometime in 2023. Um, and interestingly, I don't think they're expanding the the training data. They're optimizing in different ways this time to improve performance yeah interesting i think that's kind of in general the way that the trend is going and yeah people like tim mcgrubber who've been cautioning against just building bigger and bigger language models that consume more and more power and just taking more and more data without without cleaning the data because that's that's the thing that you have to do to get the the model to actually perform the way you want it a lot of the time is is make sure that the data is documented and cleaned and and really examined closely and if you have a gigantic set of training data it's pretty much impossible to do that right the the companies don't want to put it the the 
time and effort to do that. You got to train the AI to do that. (laughs) 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 I mean, hell, why not? But how are you going to train that AI? I don't know. Generative adversarial network. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So do you think, do you think that that's, that's a legitimate concern that, uh, AI pair programmers are going to actually replace developer jobs? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think eventually, yes. We just have to get it, give it enough time. I think the question is more mm. when and not if. Yeah. <laughs> um, would be the, would be the answer. But I I would guess probably not within the next ten years. Like I think it'll be a lot longer than that. Mm-hmm. But it is it is going to lead to a lot more low code slash no code solutions to things like, I mean. Web web design is something that's already that's already kind of in that area with things like uh like Wix, right? Wix or uh what are the other ones like Squarespace? Yeah. This yeah. graphical user interfaces for generating content. Yeah, well there's always gonna be some design uh some demand for the nitty gritty uh under the hood coding. Like even today there's people who code in C, there's people who code in assembly language right but right. not a lot you know yeah <laughs> yeah i mean a lot of, a lot of that stuff is in embedded systems that where it just has to be really fast and reliable mm. a lot of stuff right also i think it, i think in video games there's a lot of c and c plus plus it has to be so fast like that oh. that's the other advantage you get with lower level languages it's it's, it's really fast um, right because you can be really specific about how you're allocating memory and that kind of thing yeah, like I learned the other day that Tesla's AI is almost entirely in C, which kind of blows my mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I assumed it was all, all Python because that's that's kind of the big you know go to machine learning language, but Py- Python is gets interpreted into C, right? So mm-hmm. it makes sense that you could also do it in C. Yeah, that's that is mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there's definitely the possibility that. Uh, this will reduce the number of developer jobs, but I I have the theory that it may actually increase the number of developer jobs, at least for the time being. How's that? Because if you think about how this is going to affect the startup culture, startup environments, it's going to drastically increase the uh, speed of launch for new products. And because of that, it's going to spur further innovation uh, to create more sophisticated products that means that existing companies are going to need to hire more employees to keep their products relevant. Yeah, and I think it could also decrease the barrier to entry too because if you have an idea that you can implement very mm. quickly and, and prove that it works, yes, then you can get more people on board and actually do it for real. Yeah, create sophisticated projects with very little barrier to entry. But again, it's probably going to result in a lot of things that are rickety and not optimized if people don't know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's always been that way, though. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. if you approach it the wrong way, you're going to make some pretty shitty code. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's already like, are you are you Googling things and then just copying answers from Stack Overflow into your code, even though you don't know how they work? Right. right. A lot of people are. <laughs> <laughs> no no one we know i'm sure but gosh no people (laughs) um yeah that was the main drive of my talk that i just gave 
couple days ago through Single Sprout, which was that writing code with an AI pair programmer, there's definitely a strong incentive to write sloppy code, but it remains extremely important, just as it always has, to write your code through the process of test-driven development. Yeah, can you say more about that? Yeah, so test-driven development is a concept in software development where essentially you first think about what you want your code to accomplish, and you do that on a broad scale, but then you have to actually go in uh, and think about every single possible ramification, all of the nuances of how you want your code to behave, and you write tests which confirm that behavior down to the last little side effect or edge case to make sure that each function behaves the way you want it to and that the functions working in conjunction with each other work the way you expect. Um, and so this process, test-driven development, you write the tests first, and only when you have them do you go ahead and actually write the code. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I know about... I'd heard of tests, obviously, but yeah, I, I didn't... I don't know about like, writing the test before you actually writing up the code. And then, of course, you can go back through whatever Git tree you're working on and see what broke a specific test, that kind of thing, right? Exactly, yeah. So that really helps with uh, debugging. But also, a lot of the time, uh, you have what, so, so what are called unit tests uh, are the ones that test the specific input and output of each individual function. And these are probably the most important kind of test um, because uh, if you have them, that's, that's really the, the basis for confirming things are behaving the way you want. Um, so you can add a new feature and maybe that feature works, but it has some unintended side effect that breaks some other existing feature. If you have the test for that other feature, the test for that other feature should uh, return an error so that you know you have to fix uh, the feature that you just added. Right, right. And yeah, it just saves a lot of time, I imagine. Yeah, in the long run, a lot of time. So how do, how do you write a test like that before you've implemented any of it? So uh, you do have to get to the point where you know what you want your functions to do. So uh, like in the example of interacting with Go GitHub Copilot, you interact on the level of, say, write me a function that finds the largest number in a nested array, something like that. Mm -hmm. And with that natural language, it produces the, the result. But uh, with test-driven development, there's, there's your goal. Find the largest number of a nested array. So there are testing libraries. A uh, popular one is Jest. Um, previously Enzyme was big, just as kind of taking over, mm -hmm. um, which uh, make it really easy. Basically, you mock data, you feed in, say, okay, you construct an array with uh, nested values, and then you compare the, uh, you, you know, because you constructed the array, what the largest number is. So you compare the output of feeding that array into some function with this number and if the function behaves the way you want it to then the values will match right yeah i'm just trying to put this in the context of the project i've been working on which is a lot of 
like client server communication and just mm. adding features and yeah it's it's hard for me to imagine how that would all fit in yeah no there's there's pretty extensive uh literature on what is important to actually test for mm -hmm. uh i think google came out with a pretty extensive guide i'll have mm -hmm. to have to pull that up but yeah there's uh you can test all sorts of things server code client the way they interact get github copilot to write your tests for you <laughs> okay so it's funny that you say that but that's actually one of the things that github copilot does yeah <laughs> uh, of course you have to you have to define what you want the tests to do but it will actually right. generate the code <laughs> i think this goes back to one of these concepts we've talked about before how like humans sure make more mistakes than the ai but in different places and so we're likely to catch mistakes that the ai makes right right because the the way we're coming up with solutions and the way the ai is coming up with solutions are still so divergent they're just very different kinds of processes right exactly although someone was just telling me the other night after my talk that alpha zero has strategy that more resembles humans than like stockfish or any of the other ones that came before mm -hmm. and yet outperforms those i forget isn't alpha zero the one that doesn't even have to train on any game it's like it just figures it out just by playing itself yeah exactly Un unsupervised uh what's it reinforcement Something training like that yeah yeah it's remarkable <laughs> stuff yeah <laughs> I mean, I guess it, it does kind of make sense that it would develop human strategies because it's a game created by humans. And there's just, yeah, there's like a, actually probably a limited number of, of strategies as, hmm. as gigantic as that number is. But Yeah, that's a really good point. So one thing that we haven't talked about is the impact of programs like GitHub Copilot on the open source community. Yeah, can you say more about that? Because I don't really know that much sure. about Sure. I mean, there's some definite negative connotations um, considering the fact that GitHub Copilot was trained on uh, GitHub. So, of course, all these open source projects. And, you know, it's not citing any of those <laughs> when mm -hmm. it produces code. I think about 1% right. of the time or 0 0.01 or something like that, it will actually copy code from somewhere on github uh-huh and of course doesn't cite them so right, right. it's uh, a little bit problematic there yeah I, I did hear there was there were some copyright issues for sure mm -hmm. um doesn't that seem like it's a pretty easy problem to fix though like all it has to do is just say here's the web page where i found this <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so yeah there, there's possible solutions there but it goes a little bit deeper too because it brings into question microsoft's motivation in creating github copilot um mm -hmm. because as, as i was talking to you a bit before the before we start recording here mm -hmm. um this uh little bit of a scandal where 
a memo was found inside Microsoft of their basically their 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 strategy for dealing with competitors in the open source community, which mm-hmm. they boiled down to, in their words, embrace, expand, and extinguish. <laughs> this is so fucking sinister. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's a, there's an alternate one. It's like embrace something, uh, exterminate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which which can be used in replacement of that according to wikipedia yeah i feel like extinguish and exterminate have the same level of malevolence <laughs> in my brain yeah um <laughs> so pretty sinister but yeah it, it's every bit as sinister as it sounds it's basically like um hey look at these great features that are available and free in the open source community these are wonderful so let's adopt those then let's build upon them to the point where people rely on our innovations and now let's uh squash out all of the free competition uh with our proprietary knowledge making people rely on us now and how do you so how do you how do you see that connecting to github copilot exactly well because microsoft owns github and created github copilot oh okay yeah i forgot about that the connection <laughs> <laughs> And so you can kind of see that's their their aim in GitHub Copilot. I mean, integrating with VS Code, also owned by Microsoft, so th- mm-hmm. so that uh, developers may become reliant upon GitHub Copilot and then not have any uh, other means to create code as performantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's shitty. And I, I've been embedded a little bit in an open source community because I've been working on a, a Jupyter lab based thing for the past eight months. And it just seems like a bunch of really cool people who yeah. just want to help each other out and make something cool and help other people make cool, useful things. And so yeah, it's shitty that that gets exploited by a huge company like Microsoft. Absolutely. And like Okay, I guess you could make the argument is like, well, you could always still just use the use the open source stuff, and it's it's isn't Microsoft making the world a better place by providing these tools? It's like no no one's forcing people to use them, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I think that's a bit of a cop out. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd agree. Yeah, it's like what the internet already has done to the value of music and art, but with code oh my god <laughs> ouch <laughs> ouch that hits home we we need, <laughs> we need to make some code nfts the only solution <laughs> yeah i own the for loop <laughs> i own the rest api <laughs> yeah so yeah, I mean, I think basically your intuition at the beginning of this episode was spot on that you really have no idea what these uh, innovations may bring. And it's just so hard to wrap your head around the actual implications happening right now. Uh, 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 ap- actual implications of the developments happening right now to the point where we just kind of have to check out. 
yeah and of course with every advancement you get a huge chorus of people saying this isn't actually artificial intelligence this is just kind of a, you know, a party trick that this is this is doing mm-hmm. and we actually have no idea how to create something that's actually intelligent but again i think we've just i mean th- there's definitely some truth to that but i think we've also become dulled to how incredible the things we have now are yeah and i think it's personally i think it's a little short-sighted to to think that it's just a party trick because uh yeah what are the, what are the implications for this it, it's really potentially a limitless what developments will arise because of this seed so dang scary time yeah. to be alive yeah exciting <laughs> at the same time <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean at the point where we can get ai generated code to improve neural networks that'll be a real <laughs> That, that that's like the real you know fuel for the singularity right there damn and, and we already have AI that's designing chips for better ai like that's already happening whoa <laughs> <laughs> shit's happening it's going yeah. down Oh.